Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We're down to the last couple weeks of summer, so both this week and next week for Labor Day weekend, we'll be featuring previously recorded programs. This week, Simon Kelly, the co-curator, along with Esther Bell, of Degas, Impressionism and the Paris Millinery Trade, which is at San Francisco's Legion of Honor through September 24th. The show debuted at the St. Louis Art Museum, where Kelly is a curator. The exhibition melds the social history of modernizing 19th century Paris with the ways in which painters, especially Edgar Degas, portrayed one of the city's boomingest industries, the manufacturing and selling of hats. As it turns out, millinery was a gateway into the city, into employment, and into the bourgeoisie for tens of thousands of French women. The exhibition's superb catalog was co-published by the two museums and Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $48. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Simon Kelly, from earlier this spring, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades, featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org revolution for more. The Getty presents Friday Flights, a series of interdisciplinary happenings that brings together a range of Los Angeles-based artists to transform the Getty experience. On August 25th, enjoy the final performance of the season, featuring three provocative outdoor presentations, along with a sweeping sunset and panoramic view of L.A. Artist Kenyetta A.C. Hinkle presents Exploring the Nowanago Cantifrican Modes of Resistance. Los Angeles-based visual artist Scott Benzel premieres a site-specific piece, and New York-based psych rock band Psychic Ills plays a set. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Elaine Danheiser Project Series at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan is back with Projects 107, Lone Wolf Recital Corps. You'll see performances, sculptures, props, and videos by the performance collective formed by sculptor and musician Terry Adkins, which were all inspired by a quest to honor the legacies of immortal figures such as John Coltrane, Matthew Henson, and Bessie Smith. And here's good news. MoMA's open till 9 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays through December 30th, so you have more time to see it all. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org. And we're back. Simon Kelly, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, thanks, Tyler. It's good, good to be here. Degas, people know, but what are milliners? And can you give us a sense of how the trade or that sector functioned in, in 19th century Paris? Milliners are you know, essentially um, people who make hats. Of course, in, in 19th century France, they were generally women. I think, you know, working on this show, probably what surprised me the most was just how enormous the millinery trade was in 19th and early 20th century Paris. You know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, looking through the Parisian commercial directories and actually sort of adding up the number of milliners that you find there. In, in 1882, for example, you can find 944 milliners. You know, there are 41 today in Paris. So uh, the, the, the trade was exponentially larger uh, in the 19th century. That must have been like one milliner for every five or 600 Parisians. Right, and if, if actually, if not more, really. I mean, you know, because you have to remember, in the, I mean, that, those are the numbers that are, are listed in in the 
in the directory, but then there'll be several workers actually working for each of those milliners. So, and in fact, Octavio Zan, one of the writers at the time, talks about you know 8,000 you know workers in the millinery trade. So, you know, it, it was a really significant number. And and you know, one of the other things that that I was interested in is are the supporting trades, you know, the flower makers, the artificial flower makers, uh, you know, the the plume preparers you know, the, the haberdashery supplying the ribbons, those kind of secondary trades, which, which were, you know, supporting these often incredibly complex, you know, hats in, in terms of their materials. Just to build out the, the role of milliners within Paris, what was their status, if you will, within, in, within the fashion industry? I mean, they were really the elite uh, workers within the fashion industry, and they had a status which you know, was higher than the, the couturier or the dressmakers. And you often see, you know, in the discourse around uh, around the garment in, industry, a description of milliners as artists or as true artists. Uh, and that was because, you know, their their hats were described as creations. You know, they, 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 they were works in which, you know, significant creativity was involved. The, the premiere, you know, evolved these designs with, you know, complex trimmings, these ornate plumes, you know, complex artificial flower designs, you know, complex ribbon designs. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to read the, the, the critical discourse around fashion at the time, but uh, the milliner was certainly seen as, as a kind of elite worker in the, gar- in the garment trade. So Degas and his peers make lots of paintings and pastels of, of milliners, uh, as do Parisian printmakers. For you and your co-curator, Esther Bell, in San Francisco, what was the reason you were interested in doing a show about Degas and his peers in millinery? Was it was it just the paintings, or was it kind of a broader social and art historical story? I mean, I think it's both. I mean, for for me, I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm certainly interested in the paintings and their kind of radical uh, formal qualities, and you know, some I I you know I, I feel that some of the the millinery works are some of the most you know, experimental, you know, compositions that, that, that Dugar made. But, you know, I was always, I'm, you know, most of my sort of curatorial projects, I'm always interested in placing artists and their works within a broader, you know, historical and socioeconomic context. So, you know, I, I was interested in this exhibition in exploring that context or relationship of the, the milliners to labor, the, the, the kind of the idea of, of the hats as commodities and, you know, thinking about that, uh, that broader context. So, I, you know, I guess in answer to your question, a sort of balance between uh, an interest in the objects themselves, their formal qualities, but also an interest in, in the broader uh, context. Well, let's jump off into a little bit of that broader context then. In your catalog essay, you include discussion of and an image of Degas' The Laundress from 1869. It's in Munich now. Is there a relationship between Degas' interest in laundresses and milliners? Uh, there is. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, broadly, of course, I mean, his his project at this time is is one of, you know, the representation of Parisian modern life. And, and within that uh, context, you know, working women is, you know, the key elements. You know, he, he actually represents laundresses before he represents women, uh, before he represents milliners, rather. But, you know, they're essentially related as, you know, different kinds of elements of, of Parisian labor. You can also make connections i think between the you know the materiality of the objects on which they're working whether it be the you know the linen of of of, of the laundresses work or the kinds of materials uh, that you see you know in the hats on which milliners are working so 
you know, I think there's a definite connection between, uh, you know, between laundresses and milliners. This is probably a fairly specious observation, but when I read your passage on laundresses and ironing linen, for example, and, and, and linen kind of flows out over some of these Degas paintings, and then thought about the way Degas painted the hats the milliners were working on or selling, I thought I was, I, I couldn't help but thinking of one as Degas painting canvas and the other as the palette, almost like establishing a relationship between kinds of labor. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, that makes, that makes sense to me. I mean, the, and it's interesting that one of our, our catalog authors, Susan Heiner, she actually compares the, uh, the hat in the St. Louis painting, uh, Milliner's, and the way that that's represented to, to an artistic palette. So, so you can probably make an interesting, you know, comparison uh, between the, you know, Dugas imaging of actual hats and, and similarities in color to his, to his actual palette. We'll, we'll come back to labor a little later on. You know, one other thing that's in a lot of these paintings are, are, are mirrors that we see from both sides of the mirror, if you will. And windows, do either of those signify or indicate or represent modernity in in a way that would have been particularly new or fresh? You know, a key key part of the exhibition is 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 the way in which women express their their agency in the nineteenth century through through shopping and you know and, and within the context of shopping through the fitting session. You know, so I, I argue in my essay that you know Dugas images of women trying on hats fall within a sort of broader discourse uh, around the growing independence of women. So, you know, within that context, certainly the mirror uh, plays a key element in the way, the ways that women, you know, image themselves and represent themselves and, and the ways also that Dugo creates this incredible vocabulary of gesture uh, as they try, you know, the hats on before mirrors. You know, for me that it, it was important to place, you know, Dugo's work within that, that broader context of, of changing you know, attitudes to uh, women in the 19th century and there's a lot of negative discourse around that and a lot of negative discourse around shopping and you know women seen as being frivolous and you know breaking up families by their you know by their by their focus on kind of excessive shopping but i, I you know i wanted to argue that dugas works are actually more empathetic and, and showing women in a more positive sense, you know, thinking about their, their choice of hats in an actually very rational uh, sort of meditative way. One could almost describe these paintings as extended discourses on the role of the new role of women in French society. So, so between, you know, the, the, over the last 40 or 50 years of the 19th century, how has the role of women in, in French society changed? And other than in shopping, how do we see that in in these paintings? Within these paintings specifically, I mean, I, I think I think more generally, what what you're seeing is a sort of, I, I guess, a growing independence in terms of movement uh, of women. I mean, the sort of the traditional idea used to be that you know women had to be chaperoned, and in terms of their, you know, their travel around Paris, they needed they needed somebody to accompany them. I mean, more recent sort of discourse and writing has has really questioned that idea and, and emphasised the extent to which a lot of women, you know, were able to to travel around uh, around Paris independently. So, I think that that idea of of the independence of women is something which you know which Dugas is tapping into in these works. I mean, a lot of them do show you know single women, you know, trying on on hats in you know, in shops or, or, or for that matter, making hats. So I think, 
you know, more broadly, as you know, as I said before, there's an emphasis on on the kind of independent independent agency uh, of women and and a kind of focus, you know, and a focus on that. There aren't just shoppers in these pictures. There are lots of women working. You have a, a stat in your catalog essay that is just kind of astonishing. O- over the last four decades of the 19th century, a million women entered the French workforce for the first time, and 80% of those workers went to work in fashion. I mean, independently, each of those numbers is kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's across the whole of France. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that is, and again, I mean, it speaks to the, you know, the the extent of the trade, not only in terms of, you know, the couturière or, or, or milliners or, you know, makers of, of lingerie, that was another you know, underwear, that was another big trade, but also the importance of the secondary trades, you know, that we mentioned before. You know, there were 25,000 artificial flower makers in Paris. You know, there, there, there were really extensive, enormous trades supporting millinery, which, you know, are an important, you know, part of the, the discourse here. So what's the best way to begin to work our way through Degas and his peers' work here? Is it chronologically? Is it thematically? What what is kind of the way of considering this work that makes sense? I mean, I I, in, I actually thought about both, and you know, certainly chronologically, it's interesting to think about the you know the development in Dugas' work from you know, his earlier millinery works are much more mimetic and naturalistic, and and then you sort of trace the, the progression to his later imagery, which becomes very abstract. You know, in in his late works, I mean, there's a there's a pastel which we have which we're able to get from the Musée d'Orsay, his, his last pastel on the theme of millinery, where, where the way the face is represented is incredibly abstract. You have these, these kind of red striations uh, coming down the, the pastel, which are completely non-representational. You know, I, I think that, certainly that chronological approach is, is interesting in understanding Dugas' formal development. I mean, I think conceptually in understanding the themes in his work, you know, and a, a thematic approach was actually more more interesting to me, you know, thinking about what the milliner uh, actually meant, what the consumer actually meant, what the hats, you know, actually signified. So, you know, I, I think it, it sort of depends on how you want to approach, you know, Dugas work here. Well, let's start in in the shops where 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 the show starts. The show starts with with the Great Art Institute of Chicago painting the millinery shop. It's a painting with a very specific person, unlike the the abstract abstracted figure you mentioned in that late pastel. Who is she, or who might she be, and why this particular viewpoint, if you will? Uh, we, I mean, we don't know. We don't know who she is, actually. I mean, we 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 know relatively little about the specific models that the guy used in his his millinery paintings and pastels. I mean, a lot of the the women do have red hair, pretty much exclusively, and and you know that's led to a lot of discussion that Mary Cassatt, who had this you know copper colored hair, could have been the the model, um, and it's possible, although you know it doesn't look particularly like Cassatt, the uh, the subject in the millinery shop, but certainly could have been, you know, could have been involved in in in, in this pastel in some way. And I think you know this this pastel is interesting for me in the way that the the identity of the you know the sitter changes. And you know my feeling is now that it is a, it is a milliner. There's been discussion as to whether it's a milliner or a, a consumer, somebody trying on the hat, but. You know, my feeling is it's probably a premiere, you know, an upper class, a relatively, you know, affluent milliner. She's wearing an, an olive green, you know, wool dress. She has fur trim uh, around her, her neck. And interestingly, she she seems to be actually having a, a hat pin kind of placed between her lips. 
So I think she's looking at a hat that she's actually working on. But I think, you know, an, another thing that's been really fascinating about this exhibition is that for the first time we managed to bring together the, the pastel, one, well, one of the pastel studies for this painting together with the actual painting. And, and in the study, you can see that the woman's dress is completely different and she is, you know, quite obviously a, a customer trying on a hat. So I, I think there's a transition in, in Dugas' process here, you know, whereby the identity of, of the theatre changes from customer to milliner. In both this pastel and in the painting in Chicago, Degas is looking down very clearly, plainly from above at both the human figure in, in the work and at the hats. And this is something, this is consistent with the way he represents the shops um, in painting after painting over many years. Any ideas on why he's always, you know, painting as if he's, you know, standing up on a box and looking down? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, he is, I mean, he's somebody who's, I mean, his, his whole, you know, projects in a way is about, you know, trying to subvert compositional norms, if you like, and, and thinking about alternative viewpoints. I mean, I thought about photography, you know, as, as a possible, you know, alternative mode of looking that informed that, that kind of work. And, you know, as we know, Dugger was, you know, interested in photography. He produced quite a significant body of photography in the 1890s and was certainly interested in photography before that you know, before that time, probably a large number of photographs by Dugard that, you know, that we just don't know about or have been lost. You know, there are several that, that are referenced in the correspondence that we don't, we don't still have. So, so I think his practice as a photographer is, is kind of interesting. And, you know, in, in general, you know, Dugard, he's very different to somebody like Monet, for example, whose, whose focus is almost exclusively on painting. I mean, if you think about Dugard's broader practice, he's not just looking at painting and pastel. He's a great printmaker. He's a great sculptor. Uh, he's, he's also, you know, a very accomplished photographer. So he's looking at a you know, at his art in a very kind of holistic way. Um, but I do think his his photography, you know, is, is significant in terms of that kind of alternative sort of mode of looking, if you like. You and Esther Bell have not just given us paintings and, and pastels and prints. You've given us hats. Talk me through the decision to include hats in the show, why they're important to show with the artworks. I mean, I think both, both Esther and I were, you know, we, we were interested in, in exploring the sort of wider visual culture here. You know, I, I think had we not in, included hats, I mean, the, to me, and I, I think for Esther too, the exhibition just would, you know, n not have felt whole. I mean, we were certainly interested in, in exploring, you know, the potential relationships between the particular hats in, in Dugard's works and those of his, his circle and, you know, specific hats. And there are a number of, of hats in the show which, you know, are very close uh, to those in, in, in the images in the show. So we were looking, you know, at at those kind of specific connections as, as far as you could do that because, you know, we don't know, we know that Dugard went to milliners on the Rue de la Paix, but we don't know which specific milliners he went to. We know Manet went to a, uh, the, the Viro milliner, for example, so in his case, we do know the specific milliner. We try to make connections uh, in the catalogue between Manny and Viro, but in Dugas' case, it is it is it is more general. But I think having the hats in the show, you know, to go back to that theme of materiality, uh, is important because when you when you actually see the hats and you themselves and you see the the complexity of the materials, you know, whether it be the you know the sort of drooping elegance of an ostrich plume, or the sort of rugged texture of a straw hat, or or the you know, the sort of the, the, the satin sheen of a, of a ribbon. I mean, you, you kind of need to actually see the hat itself to understand the way that, that Duga tried to, you know, to represent the hat. And 
in a lot of his work, there's a kind of important mimetic quality to them. He's trying to use pastel or paint to actually render the very textures of, of the, you know, the hat itself. Especially with plumage, yeah. Especially with ostrich feather, feathers, even more specifically. Is there any contemporary 19th century French discourse around these hats that gets them close to the status, if you will, of sculpture or the fine arts? Well, there is. I mean, you know, they're, they're, and they're, you know, writers like Cousin and Arsène Alexandre, you know, particularly at the end of the 19th century, they're talking about these hats as, you know, quote, creations. So, you know, there, there is an idea. I mean, probably one of the most interesting sort of books around this is Le Reine de Léguie by Alexandre, where he talks about, you know, the queens of the needle trade and talks about milliners as artists in their own right. And, you know, effectively their their hats as as being sculptures. So, you know, there is a significant discourse which is is developing around around that idea. And, you know, you can argue that I mean Dugar he wrote about Beatrice Morisot that she makes paintings as she would hat. Um he's making some kind of you know obviously making some kind of parallel there between the you know the making of of the painting art object and the making of the hat. So I mean I think that's interesting to me and, and suggests the the kind of you know relatively elevated status that he was according to the mill in there. And, and I think that's, I mean, you only have to look at the, the artworks themselves and and look at the kind of absorbed and focused way that he represents milliners. And to me, that that is, you know, generally pretty empathetic and, and more broadly complicates, you know, that idea was too around Dugar as being, you know, misogynistic in his, his representations of women. My guest is Simon Kelly. We'll be right back after a break. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Ronnie Horn on view through August 20th. See Horn's large-scale cylindrical glass sculptures that are infused with light, weight, and presence. The exhibition, the first U.S. museum presentation of her work since 2010, and her first to focus specifically on cast glass sculpture, highlights the artist's inspiration from nature and language, as well as the reflective and translucent qualities of glass. Learn more and at nashersculpturecenter.org. So we have the hats, we have Degas and his interest in the shops, and, and these are things that Degas is painting in the late 60s, early 1870s, it takes until the early 1880s for Degas to really kind of zoom in on the consumer, if you will, on, on, on women trying on hats. At the risk of asking an, an unanswerable question, any guesses as to why it takes Degas so long to focus on, on, on the buyer, on the shopper? I mean, it's difficult to know for, for sure. I mean, you can certainly, if you look at his correspondence, you can see uh, a growing interest in, you know, in the discourse around commerce in, in the 1870s. You know, you see his interest in, in the representation of cotton, for example, in the cotton market, you know, the famous painting of the cotton market at New Orleans. 
um, which he sold to them. It's at Harvard, yeah. Well, no, actually, I'm not thinking about that one. I'm sure there are two. There's that one, but there's also the one that was sold to the Paul Museum, which was the first time that Dugas was, you know, sold a work to a, 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 a French museum in, in in the late 1870s. That was a really important moment for him, you know, in terms of his career. And you know, I, I think you know that, and that took place in the late 70s. I think that success, you know, probably encouraged. And that is, you know, that's more men than women, but it is it is thinking about the act of, you know, the Obviously, the cotton is related to the act of shopping and commerce. So, uh, so I think that success probably, you know, encouraged his interest in themes of commerce. And and it, it's a, you know, the the, the interest in in trade in, in in Dugas' work is a kind of fascinating element. He's at the same time he's working on, you know, on the millinery paintings and pastels. He's also representing men at the stock exchange in in, in Paris. So. I think, you know, in the late 70s, 80s, you can see that growing interest in millinery within the context of his broader work and, and the growing interest in, you know, in commercial and trade themes. Is there one or two pictures of women shopping for hats or women trying on hats that you think are particularly notable or good? I mean, I love the one in the in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts uh, uh, at the Milliners, which is, you know, Dugas. I mean, it's a work that, you know, in the catalogue I, I redated. I mean, I, 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 I think it was began in the 18, early 1880s and then you know reworked in the early 18 in the late 1890s it becomes very abstract and it's a work which is just to me so kind of bizarre actually and, and kind of enigmatic and particularly in the way you know that the face of the uh, of, of the woman shopper you know is actually reduced essentially to a blank oval you know that and that as represented in the mirror in the painting yeah in, as represented in the mirror and you know and that that to me is you know, then you start to wonder why is why is he doing that? I mean, it's just it's just such an an, an interesting you know conceit, if you like. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, one other thing to say about these these works like that one or the St. Louis Milliner's painting is that we don't know for sure they were finished. You know, the, all of these paintings were in, you know, or certainly those two paintings, the pastel that I mentioned from Orsay earlier, that they were all in Dugas' studio at his death. You know, they have the, they have the studio stamp, so. We don't know for sure that that Dugar ever completed them, but but certainly in terms of the you know the one with the the, the painting with the, the reflection of the blank face, I mean is is that is, is that Dugar as as kind of proto abstract painter, or is it saying something more you know more broadly about you know the the relationship of, of between the individual and and capitalism at the time? It, it almost I mean I, you can almost read it in a kind of Marxist sense as a you know, some kind of alienation and the way that the sort of self is is kind of emptied out, if you like, within this, you know, rapidly expanding, you know, capitalist consumer system. I mean, that maybe that's reading too much into it, but I think it's, you know, it's interesting to think about it in that context. You know, I had in my notes that it seems like as Degas' engagement with millinery as a subject goes on, that his interest in portraying faces, if you will, be, uh, in in those paintings becomes less and less. That that could be, as you said, of course, he just didn't finish those paintings. We don't know. But it but you know certainly in the St. Louis painting, he's just not interested in you know bothering with faces, if you will. <laughs> and and the Virginia painting, I'm glad you brought it up. It's one of my favorite paintings in the show. It's it's full of kind of every painterly trick in the bag. I mean a diagonal composition, big flat planes of color that push everything toward the picture plane. And in, in addition to wanting to, to uh, bring up the, the, the faceless hat trying on person, which you already did, 
the one thing in this painting that stumps me a bit is what is going on in the middle of the far far right <laughs> i mean the hat the the cropped form of the hand i mean that that yeah, yeah i mean that's really that, that is really you know i think that's an important part of the work and you know of course i mean it speaks to the guy's fascination with you know cropped compositions um, but if you look, if you look carefully at that hand, I mean, you can just see how how stylized it is. And you know, I, I wonder. I mean, it looks to me that it's been posed. And and of course, these works. I mean, I you know, I think they're you know they're they're constructed in 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 Degas' studio. I think it's probably likely that he had a hand model, you know, for that particular hand. You know, just as a lot of these hats. I mean, I, I he you know, my feeling is that he developed his own hat hat collection and probably used. You see similar hats in similar in the same, you know, similar paintings and pastels. But there is a kind of, you know, fictive element here, which is, uh, which is interesting. But, I mean, he was interested in, it. I mean, the, you know, one of the, the few quotes that we have from Dugar about his, you know, his, his, his visiting uh, a millinery or, or a dressmaking shop is when he accompanied uh, Madame Strauss, Jean-Pierre Strauss, to a, 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 a fitting session at a dressmaker in, probably in the, in the late 1880s, and he, he he talked about his fascination with the red hands of, of the of the shop girl who holds the hat pins. So, you know, he makes that specific, you know, reference to her hands, and and he was fascinated by gestures. You know, that's a that's a key part of his project here. So, you know, I think the hands are. I mean, I'm you know I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I think it's a key key part of the work too. So, there's a whole section in in the catalog, and I presume in the show on on plumes on 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 hats feathers and such so before we talk about artists and and their representation of such plumes on hats why how did that happen how did it happen i mean it 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 happens because i mean just on a very basic level i mean plumes have this kind of wonderful you know sculptural quality particularly ostrich plumes which can be you know, very, very grand and, and, and droop in a, you know, incredibly elegant way. And of course, the feathers them, themselves beyond the, you know, the quality of, of their shape have uh, these incredible colors, you know, and, and sort of iridescence. And, you know, there, there's a discourse at the time which, you know, associates feathers uh, with femininity and, you know, women wearing plumes as a way to, to enhance their femininity. I mean, it's, of course, it's complex to us today because, you know, so many birds were, you know, were 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 killed from the millinery trade. So there's a, it is a complex subject, and it and it did lead to you know the passing of conservation laws, the Audubon Society, etc. But you know, on, on a basic level, I mean, I think I think you know, plumes became an, an an essential part in 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 the design of the architecture of the hat. And there were efforts, there were contemporary efforts to to ban plume trading and, and, and such, if I remember right. There were, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the French government, because of the power of the, the millinery, millinery industry in France, you know, there was quite a, a lot of resistance. A, a lot of these, you know, the laws banning the, uh, the importation of plumage actually came, you know, from outside of France in 1913. America, you know, bans the importation of exotic plumage as a similar law passed in, in England, you know, in the early 1920s. So, you know that those those laws have have a massive impact on on the French millinery trade and you know really sort of cripple the the, the kind of export business of, of that trade. You know that's the export, but of course, uh, I mean the import to me is is fascinating here and and the way that you have this this global trade in in plumage which just expands exponentially in the late 19th and early 20th century, and you see 
you know, ostrich plumes, just to take that example, is, is coming particularly from Africa and, you know, the Cape province in, in what is now South Africa. And, and, you know, I was interested in relating that to sort of broader ideas about colonialism and colonial trade and the way that, you know, plumage fits within that broader discourse. You know, a lot of the plumes are coming from, you know, the British colonies in, in, in the south of Africa, and then the French are trying to compete with that by developing their own, you know, ostrich farms in Algeria, which actually weren't very successful. But there, there is a kind of colonial competition element here, and and also just the kind of the whole scramble for Africa, which is going on at this time, and the, you know, the attempt to seize different countries, which could add to that plumage trade. So, so you know, seeing plumage within the broader context of the other, you know, the the problematic trades like ivory, for example, which were also going on at that time. Your colleague uh, Kimberly Christman Campbell has a catalog entry on a hat from around 1912, that uh, it's a hat with feathers and such and an eyeball arranged to make it look like the bird is is there's a bird actually sitting on the hat and and this catalog entry notes that in 1911 or by 1911 the paris fashion industry was responsible for the deaths of 300 million birds per year yeah yeah i I, just yeah that's a lot of a lot of birds i mean (laughs) yeah i my my feeling is is that i mean that number is 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 hyperbolic you know that that's a number which was, was I mean it was quoted in 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 a news, in a paper at the time, but I haven't actually found any evidence to you know to support that specific number. So you know certainly millions of 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 hats of, of birds were killed for the trade. There's no doubt about that. I think that number is hyperbolic. This section of the show seemed to argue that artists really liked painting feathers. Any any particular favorites or, or uh, particularly good examples of artists finding feathers irresistible? I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, the Degas, uh, the Degas Pastel Chalamodiste uh, from Musée d'Orsay, which has a you know, fascinating close-up composition as if, as if you're looking through uh, a shop window. You know, Degas seems to be, you know, fascinated in, in representing the complexity of the ostrich plume and, you know, the, the individual barbs, uh, even the barbule, you know, coming off the barb. And I'm really looking closely, you know, at the texture and the makeup of the plume. And you also get, it's a very kind of tactile sense. You get a sense that, you know, Dugar really, you know, looked closely, but also really touched and understood the, you know, the the, the texture of, of, of these feathers. So, you know, I, I think, you know, that particular one is, is a good one, and and that's also one that was you know it was it was exhibited at the time it was it was exhibited in London it was discussed and uh, you know and attention was was actually drawn to the way that he represented the you know the feathers in that work and and the sort of mimetic quality of them. We'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com. I was surprised to see uh, a section in the catalog on men's hats because I, they seem different. Were were the same people who were making hats for women making hats for men? Uh, no, I mean that that's you know the the the, the Chapelier were were the were the hat makers who were making the, the men's hats and that was you know a very different industry and it was largely you know men who were making those hats but it was significant you know that again you know looking through the commercial directory in the 1880s you find you know 655 uh, Chapelier uh, are listed in in Paris so it was a really significant industry in itself it didn't have the complexity in terms of the the materials, you know, and and the variety of of design, if you like. I mean, there are there are there are nuances, of course, in the top hat and the, particularly in the top hat and the size of the top hat and the, you know the types of materials, but certainly not to the extent as you're finding in in women's hats at the time. 
You mentioned flower makers earlier on. How are painters, Degas included, interested in, in, in flowers on, on milliners' hats? Is it sometimes an excuse for painterly flourish and, and touch? How do different things that are on the hats become useful to painters? No, I mean, I think that's, that's interesting. When I think, you know, Degas is... He's he's he certainly is interested in in flowers on hats, and there you know there are significant examples of that. I think actually, I mean, I haven't mentioned Renoir yet, and you know, Renoir is is actually quite an important figure in this story too, just because of the the, the extremely large number of of images of hats that he produced, many of which you know do do show flowered hats. So I think he he had a particular interest in in that subject, actually more so than Dugar, you know, I, I would argue. Remar, you, you don't see in Renoir's work images of, of, of the, the production of hats as, as you do in Dugar's work, but, you know, there, there are large numbers of, of works of women actually wearing hats. So, and, and I think, you know, Rem, there's an interesting quote by, by Renoir's biographer, Gustave Coquier, where he talks about Renoir as an erotomaniac uh, about hats. And, you know, he really thought about hats and their materials in in a erotic kind of sensual context which you know makes sense to me when you see the you know the sort of whole of, of, of Renoir's work but you can argue that you know the way he represents flowers and, and plumes for that matter you know has a has a kind of quasi erotic context to it so how often did Degas exhibit these often kind of informal feeling paintings and pictures of milliners and shoppers and, and the trade and how were they received? I mean, the, the, fir the first evidence that we have is, is the second Impressionist exhibition in 1876. He showed a, a work which was titled Mordiste uh, in, in, the, in the exhibition catalogue. Nobody has been able to identify you know, that, that work for sure. It's perhaps possible that it might be the Getty painting in an earlier uh, iteration, but uh, there's no you know, there's no certainty about that, but that that is the you know the first evidence of his exhibiting uh, in the Middle East, and then in the early 1880s, the, the works here in Durand Ruel's uh, exhibitions of, of of work in London. You know, Durand Ruel, the, the dealer, is a key figure here. He's he's buying you know a significant number of the Milliner uh, pastels, and then you know the 1886 Impressionist exhibition is an important moment because two of the pastels are, are shown there. Uh, the the woman trying on a hat at the uh, at the Met and the and the Little Milliners, um, as it's called, the Petit Maudis, the Nelson Atkins Museum. So, you know that that's an important moment, and 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 the sort of discourse around you know, around Dugas' work. Then it, it is interesting because, you know, if you look at it, you start to understand the kind of original radical charge that I mean, you know, these these works, uh, you know, Dugas' works in general is often kind of reduced to a sort of pretty commodity, but but at the time it had a you know, had a very radical charge, and and, that, and certainly that was the case in in those in those two millinery, you know, two millinery pastels, and a lot of that was about you know the way they were perceived in terms of their realism and you know subverting you know more conventionally idealized norms. You know, and critics described his 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 women his, in the milliner pastels as as squirrel-like or, or monkey-like. So you know, there there is a, a actually a fascinating discourse around the, around the millinery pastels after i mean in, in the 1890s there are fewer you know he, he actually produced there's a sort of gap between the mid 1880s and the late 1890s um, when he's producing fewer millinery works then he comes back to millinery in the late 1890s but most of those works 
you know, aunt exhibited that they remain in his studio until his death. For Degas in particular, are his portrayals of milliners and, and women working in the shop sympathetic to labor? Should we think of these as, as pictures of labor? I mean, that's a good question. You know, I've, I've thought about that, actually. You know, it, it, I mean, Degas, I, I don't feel that, you know, Degas' work is never explicitly political. I, I don't, but, 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 I mean, I don't think you can remove um, his work from the broader conditions of, of their production and, and, you know, and the broader political context. And so, you know, if, if you look, if you look at the works, you know, for example, of the 1880s and 1890s, I mean, this was a time when, when there was, you know, significant agitation uh, for, you know, increased wages and, and shorter working hours, you know, for, for women, uh, particularly in the garment industry, there was a lot of discussion, for example, of, of the veille, you know, the night shift, uh, which, which women, you know, you know would have, have to work. So there were, you know, very, very different, uh, very difficult uh, working conditions for, for women, even though, you know, as I said earlier, the, the millinery was, you know, milliners were seen as the elite workers in the trade. There were lots. There was quite a significant hierarchy within within millinery. So a lot of the the workers lower down in that hierarchy were, were, were you know were not paid well, and were, were, you know maybe you know two two to four francs a, 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 a day. So 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 not you know not 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 high wages. So so I think it's it is important to to place Dugar's work within within that context and. You know, I think he's he's without being explicit politically, he's arguing for the the status of the milliner, you know, the artistry of the milliner, uh, and, and you know, and for their their importance within, you know, Paris's wider society. He's not he's not he's not showing you know a crowded sweatshop. You, know, you don't see that where where you see, you know, the, a, a lot of the explicit problems around labour. There's it's generally more of a focus on on one or two figures, but I think he does you know he emphasises the importance of the status of the milliner. And finally, we've been talking mostly about Degas, but Mary Cassatt is here, and and Morisot, and Renoir, and and a number of Alfred Stevens, a number of others. Is there a significant difference in each of their interests in milliners and hats, or are they all kind of interested in the range of topics we've been discussing? I mean, it depends on on you know on, on the person you're you're talking about. I mean, I think Cassatt. Because that's an interesting example, because you know she was wearing a lot of these hats. She was shopping. She was shopping with uh, Degas. She's. I mean, she. It's somewhat surprising to me that she never actually represented, you know, Milner's creating hats. I mean, that that's kind of a a lacuna in, in a way in her in her output. But her her fascination with the materials of hats and and the wearing of hats uh, is something that certainly you can you know you can relate to that of. Uh, of of Degas, you mentioned Alfred Stevens. I mean, he, he's he's an artist who, uh, or like Tissot, uh, an artist who also treated similar kinds of of subjects. I mean, I I I see those, you know, their their work probably within a more kind of explicitly commercial context, and and certainly, you know, Tissot and Stevens in, enjoyed considerable commercial success with with their you know, work including millinery subjects in the 70s and 80s, and actually their, you know, their career was that was a model for for Dugar in many ways, who who certainly wanted commercial success himself. He wasn't somebody who, you know, who turned away from commerce. So, so I think you know there are some 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 interesting comparisons you can draw. We haven't talked about Manet. You know, Manet is somebody who who, who Dugar 
you know, greatly admired. And we have a you know important Manet painting in the show, which you know there's debate as to as to the, the the space that's represented, but it also speaks to you know the closeness of, of Manny and Duga and the way that you know those, those two artists too you know share shared their interest in in this key you know aspect of, of Parisian modern life. Manet's Cleveland painting of Berthe Morisot is is in the show. That's the kind of triangular painting that rises to to plumage. And you mentioned Tiso, the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario painting in the show is explicitly commercial in a number of ways, including that the woman owning or working in the shop is holding open the door for us. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Simon Kelly, thanks so much. All right, thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.